week of August 7th, 2022, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 590, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. This is London. Yes, in London, I'm Michael Giltz, doing a little Edward R. Murrow there for you. Okay, I didn't know where you were headed with that. I couldn't figure uh, it out. During World War II, Edward R. Murrow was reporting from the roofs of London as bombs fell and his radio broadcast began. This is London. Ah, okay. I, uh, unlike you, uh, was not around during World War II, so I... <laughs> we shall fight them on the beaches. Yes, yes. I, I, was, I was not around during World War II, but I was around for the great news coming from the Eisner Awards. That's the biggest annual prize in the comic book industry. And congratulations to our guest. The Good Asian won an Eisner Award for Best Limited Series. That means our guest, Pornsack Pichichot, is now and forever an Eisner winner. Along no with, way! We should yeah, call him and congratulate him. Along with Alexander Tefengi. Uh, meanwhile, congrats again to our guest Kyle Higgins, an Eisner nominee for Radiant Black, along with Marcello Costa. So that's awesome. Very good news. Uh, great to hear from them. And now we will get 10,000 pitches from all the comic book people who want to come on our show. It's the lucky charm if you want to win an Eisner Award. Um, I thought you were going to um, talk about Vin Scully. I thought you were going to go into... The Vin Scully of it all. It's time for Dodgers baseball. Yeah, you know, we've got 10,000 obituaries. Everybody died in like the last hour. <laughs> like, yeah. Liz beat me on one of them. Uh, you know, I, I finally was going to get physical with you, but you know, you beat me fair and square. And anyway, so that's exciting. We're checking our emails all the time. I saw this email headline from Rolling Stone. And uh, tell me what your response is. This is the headline in a Rolling Stone email. Meet the exotic dancer who went undercover to take down domestic terrorists. I wouldn't read the article. I would immediately call whoever represents Rolling Stone and buy the rights. Because they, they that's sold, a movie. They, they sold the rights when the headline was written. They didn't even have a story. And that was, I mean, yeah, you'd be there like, oh, that's sold already. There's no way that's not sold. And by the way, I can tell you, having been on the teams that would, would shop those or, be, uh, you know, be pitched those stories, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I was on the team that sold them and the team that bought them. Yes, you get them ahead of time when there's a big story like that. Oh, yeah. They're, they are shopping it long before the, it hits the publication. Yeah. Just like when books are published. Uh, they've been optioned yeah. long before that happens usually. So there's a lack. Oh, how was Hawaii? Aloha. Hawaii spring. was very sunny. Very good. Very nice. Very cool. And next week, by the way, I'm, I will be in Finland. Uh, so from, from one end of the world to the other, literally opposite ends of the earth, uh, for a cinema conference. And I'm hoping that we can do the show from Finland. <laughs> if not, there won't be. Is that next week? That is next week. So, so there may not be a show next week. And the irony is, I remember you saying, what, they have internet in Hawaii? And sure enough, the place I was staying, I had to wait three days for the people to come and repair the internet. <laughs> just like, no way. By the way, I'm talking to Acker, Acker, actor Michael Antkeen, who is, lives in Hawaii now. He's on Twin Peaks, of course, and Slapshot with Paul Newman. I'm working on a story about Paul Newman. And uh, he said that I was uh, Ohana. He liked my taste in music and said, ah, anybody who can okay. reference that is clearly Ohana. So that's nice to know. So, uh, you know. Did he tell you what Ohana means? Because he, I can he, tell you. I, he assumed I knew because I used a Hawaiian word in my, one of my, you know, I'm going to 
you know, Google that and do something. So, but then of course I looked it up. Of course it means I'm a family. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just checking. Anybody who's seen Lilo and Stitch should know that by the way. Oh, oh, I have not seen Lilo and Stitch. So there you go. But I have seen this week's episode. It's a big one. It's overstuffed. It's two weeks. A lot has happened. We're going to be brisk, Sperling. Tell us what we're going to talk about. Well, that wraps it up for this week. So <laughs> thanks for listening. That's how brisk we are. Actually, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are still blurry from all the time changes. You know, as Michael mentioned, I've been in Hawaii and Michael has been in London. And hey, look, we cover the world. We tell you that every week. We cover the world for you. And this week is no different. We've got box office. We've got social justice updates from Iran and Italy and L.A. We've got streaming numbers. Hey, we've got Broadway numbers. Hey, we've got the West End. You're welcome. Whoa, I just for a split second there. I felt like Dwayne Johnson. You're welcome. Uh, we take uh, the Wall Street. <laughs> we take the Wall Street Journal. I just looked at. Uh, I can see Michael, and I, when I did that, he just looked at me like, "What the hell are you doing?" When does Dwayne Johnson do that? In uh, Moana. Oh, okay. When I he saw plays that one. Maui. I saw yeah. that one. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, the, we're going to take the Wall Street Journal to task for a big story warning the world that Disney's Marvel movies are hitting the wall. They're making less money, getting less good reviews, and are not a big deal on TikTok. So, you know, you know what that means. If you've got teenagers, you know, if you're not a big deal on TikTok, it's a disaster. Or is it? We dive deep. On Inside Baseball, I'm going to geek out over the mess that is the Warner Brothers HBO Discovery Max. I have a name for them, by the way. We'll talk about that later. Remind hmm. me to, to mention the name that I've come up with, which we will be giving Warner Brothers free of charge. Sorry. We'll be giving Warner Brothers Discovery free of charge a name for their new streaming service. Yeah, very uh, nice. And by the way, WBD, as I like to call them, they've got a ton of debt and a plan to fix it all, which really means firing people and writing off all the movies. So we'll tell you what's going on. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. Uh, WBD sounds like an underwear line. Anyway, I agree. <laughs> so we're looking at the worldwide box office for the week ending August 7th. And we look at the box office from around the world. We pull links from Comscore and all the trade stories that we can. We look at charts. We look at uh, charts from different countries, Japan, Korea, India, everywhere we can. And the number one movie around the world is a movie most people aren't talking about. It's Moon Man. This is a Chinese film. It's about an astronaut who is stranded on the moon when an asteroid wipes out the entire population of earth however what do you do i mean what do you do you're pretty much like what did matt damon do on mars how did he get the potatoes <laughs> the twist which is not a secret is that there are people alive on earth and they're watching a live stream of him on the moon thinking he's the last person alive on earth so that's that's interesting so that's going on during the whole movie last week it opened up to about 150 million dollars big big opening this week it made another 150 million dollars if you were just looking at the weekend those numbers would be smaller but because we're not ignoring the last seven days of box office. Why would we? $152 million this week. This movie's at $300 million worldwide. We don't know what the total budget is for the movie, but it's a big hit already. And number two. I'm going to have to stop is, you right there, Michael. Oh, it's going to be a long show. Okay, well, I have to call up whoever owns Moon Man and get the remake rights because that is a great idea. The, the, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting idea. Um, but Chinese movies can travel all over the world. They're waiting for that movie 
that they can make that will dominate the rest of the world the way Hollywood movies can dominate the rest of the world. They want to make films that will have a broader appeal. They clearly can make movies that click with their own market. Maybe that's all they need, but they would love to see movies like Moon Man instead of having to just be remade actually click with a Western audience. We'll see if this movie can be the one. Uh, based on the reviews, maybe it can. And number two around the world is Bullet Train, the Brad Pitt action film that made $63 million on its opening week. Kind of a mellow opening, but the, there's a wide open you know, space for the next few weeks. There are no other big movies opening. It's the end of the summer. The audience has liked it a lot more than critics. So they're thinking this movie will have legs and it will run and it will make back its $90 million budget. We'll have to see where it ends up. A so-so start, but hey, if people turn out and they like it and the word of mouth is good, it could work. Certainly the word of mouth was good for Minions, the rise of Gru. That made $48 million this week. It's at $760 million worldwide. A huge success, almost 10 times its budget of $85 million. And China said, all right, you've made $760 million worldwide. All right, you can release it in China. So that's coming out August 19th in China. Now it's not on. Is it on any um, streaming platforms? I don't think so yet. Not yet, no. No, so... If that will be before then, then at least it can open in China before there are pirated copies all over the place. DC. Yeah, I love the fact, you know, China does not like it when they open movies or allow movies in that have been pirated in their own country. And so they're like, oh, but you've already been pirated. I don't need to release you here. Uh, you know, and, and no, I'm saying that they're doing just they're doing just symbolic releases that don't really matter. They know they're not going to do well because they're already been pirated. So it's sort of like, yeah, fine. We'll, we'll let you open up later. You can't complain. We don't release your movies, but it's just a token release because we know everybody can already get it for free online. Right. So I think it's it's a different attitude. It's not like, oh, it's it's just more of a, uh, you know, screw you. <laughs> we'll release your movie when we want to, and we're not going to help you out. That's what they seem to be doing. DC League of Super Pets, that's helping itself out. It made $42 million this week, about doubling what it made last week. So just like Moon Man, it doubled its money in the second week, went from $40 million to $80 million. It cost about $90 million to make. But it's off to an okay star. Thor, Love and Thunder. We'll be talking about that in Inside Baseball. It made another $37 million this week. It's at $700 million worldwide. Ragnarok made $850 million worldwide. But, of course, that was released in China and Russia. China was probably, at the time, the biggest or certainly the second biggest market in the world. So... You know, it really hurts when you're not in two big, big territories like that. So given all that, Thor, Love and Thunder is doing better than Ragnarok in all the other territories where it is open. You can't penalize it for not being in China. That's not the movie's fault. It has succeeded commercially where it's been available to see. Top Gun Maverick has done great everywhere. $32 million this week, $1,353,000,000 worldwide. People just keep going to see this movie in North America. It's the seventh biggest film of all time in North America, just passing Titanic. It's just unbelievable. Tom Cruise at 60 is on top of the world. And this movie, I think it could have been put on streaming July 11th. Paramount has been boasting how smart they were to wait. And they seem to be smart again. They waited to put it in theaters. And now they're waiting to put it on streaming. It's not available on streaming yet, is it? Find out. No, it's not. And I know a lot of people who want to go back and see it a second time. They're like, should I go see Nope or should I go see Top Gun again? 
I mean, that's how good the, that's how good the word of mouth is. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Uh, back in China, Warriors of Future, a Hong Kong science fi, sci-fi action or flick, uh, opened up this week and made about $30 million. An alien asteroid or something lands on Earth, releases a plant that wipes out most of humanity. People in Hong Kong are fighting back, but then they find out there's a mysterious conspiracy going on as well. Hmm. Uh, Soil and green is people. That's all I'll say. Not that I know anything about the movie. Hansen Rising Dragon. That's a Korean war film. That opened up last week as well where we were off. Uh, that made about, again, it doubled its money in the second week. On its opening weekend, it made $18 million. In the next seven days, it made another $18 million. So it has dropped weekend to weekend. But, you know, you double what you made in your opening weekend, you're doing okay. It's at $36 million worldwide. It's at a $24 million budget. And it's a prequel to one of the biggest hits of all time in Korea. Actually, it's the biggest Korean film at the Korean box office. Jordan Peele's film, Nope, that has opened up. It's now at $100 million worldwide. It's one of three movies that made about $17 million. Nope made $17 million. Elvis made $17 million. That's at $250 million worldwide. And Jurassic World Dominion made $17 million. That's at $960 million worldwide. A good chunk of that coming from China. So it's getting closer and closer to the $1 billion mark. Also having a good hold is Where the Crawdads Sing. That's getting good word of mouth from order audiences. It made $15 million this week. It's at $77 million worldwide. It's already tripled its reported budget. So that one is a winner right now, and it's got legs. Uh, in Korea, they have a film that opened up, Talk About Remake Rights. It's called Emergency Declaration. It's about people on a passenger jet plane when a passenger on the plane goes into the loo and see, I'm in England and he breaks out something. He has a little vial or something. He is a bioterrorist weapon himself. He comes back onto the plane, releasing this horrible virus onto the plane. They're all trapped on the plane, trying to stop the virus from spreading, find out who the killer is. It sounds just rife for remake. Don't you think you're on a plane, you're trapped, and there's a COVID. You know, that's the idea, right? You're on a plane, you're trapped, and all of, of snakes, the... Not snakes, but but No, no, but all, all of the entertainment system goes out. <laughs> no, I think it's a very commercial idea, but it only made $11 million on its opening week. Back in China, the romantic drama Almost Love made $10 million on its opening week. From what I can tell by the trailer, it's about a young couple, a romantic drama about a young couple, a guy and a girl who are fated not to be together. They are together, they break up, they are not meant to be together forever, and it's tearful and sad, but they will always cherish their memory of each other. Ethan Hawke keeps chugging along. If you haven't watched this documentary film, The Last Movie Stars, about Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, it's available at least on HBO Max. It's a CNN Films thing. Six parts, a roughly an hour each. It's terrific. It's really good. It's very cleverly done. It's really good. He's got an excellent documentary film on HBO Max. He's got a horror flick in theaters that's just hit $150 million. The guy's having a renaissance. He's having a good time. Uh, back yeah, in North you know, America. Uh, mm -hmm. I saw that was uh, that played at, uh, in Cannes, that movie. All six parts or just the first two episodes, I think? You know, I don't know. I, didn't I believe see it was just the first few. It doesn't matter. They, they showcased okay. the, move, the, the, the project. Uh-huh. But you didn't get to it yet. No, I have not. I highly recommend it. It's very interesting. Um, Easter Sunday opened up in North America. It's a comedy uh, starring Joe Coy, the stand-up comic, and Tiffany Haddish and others. It's about family getting together on Easter Sunday. It made about $5 million in its opening week. The 
big, big Chinese hit, Lighting Up the Stars. I made another $5 million. Ek Villain Returns, that's an Indian film. It made $4 million in the second week, so it opened modestly to about $2 million. It's made $6 million so far. They're still looking for a movie in India from the Hindi part of the industry to catch fire. They've had these movies from the Telugu part of the industry and all these other areas catch fire and do well, but the Hindi industry is in a bit of a slump. Uh, Shamshara opened up with uh, Ranbir Kapoor. That's made about $4 million this week. It's at $8 million counting. I think those are the numbers from last week. I couldn't find any update. Either it's fallen off the chart or we just don't have the info yet. But India is back. The box office is back. But the Hindi industry is not catching fire yet. They're waiting to have their first big return hit. And if you're looking for word of mouth hits, Mrs. Harris goes to Paris with Leslie Manville. That keeps chugging along. Another $2 million. That's at $8 million and counting. Oh, by the have way, you last- has your mom seen this movie yet? Well, no, because we're in London, or she would have. Because um, this is a movie your mom would love. This is movies made for mom. So we also should note that Everything Everywhere All at Once is the first film made or overseen by A24 to hit $100 million worldwide and a, and a more welcome hit you couldn't find. Happy to see that. So we've got all that box office info from uh, this week, and we've got the chart for the weekend in July 31st, so you can check it all out. Well, I guess my question is, if we, before we, we start checking it out, I want to go back to these Marvel movies because the Wall Street Journal had a major story on the Marvel franchise that Disney mm -hmm. now owns. And they're saying Marvel is in big, big trouble. Well, actually, they said Marvel is in a bit of a slump. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Their movies are grossing less. They're getting poorer reviews. And do people even like superhero movies anymore? Uh, well, I'm the wrong person to ask, but let's go through the claims that they have. First okay. claim, the steep second week drop of Thor, Love and Thunder. That's right. This, it, that this proves article, the point. That proves my, the point. So well, that, case that's closed. What, that's what triggered the story. It came out about a week ago when the second weekend of Thor, Love and Thunder happened. It had a steeper than usual drop for that movie. The rebuttal is that, yes, Thor, Love and Thunder may be the first Marvel movie of 25 in a row to not gross more than the previous film in a series. That means Iron Man 2 made more than Iron Man 1. Iron Man 3 made more than Iron Man 1 and 2. Same with Ant-Man, Captain America, The Avengers, Guardians of the Galaxy. Three, four films did that. Every single one in each of those series, The Avengers, each one grossed more than the one before. That's amazing. They did it for 24 movies in a row. So it's true. Thor, Love and Thunder will gross less than Thor Ragnarok. But you know what? If Joe DiMaggio is on a 54-game hitting streak and he finally has a game where he doesn't get a hit, you say, ah, he's in a slump. <laughs> you say, no, he just had an amazing hitting streak. And guess what? Tomorrow, he'll probably start another one. More importantly, Love and Thunder has done just as well or better than Ragnarok in the rest of the world. It just hasn't been released in China and Russia. Not their fault. So the movie's not a disaster. It's done great. It's tripled its budget. It is right on par with Guardians with uh, uh, the other Thor movie, Ragnarok. And yes, if it falls short, 24 out of 25 films kept that streak going. That's amazing. And let's face it, it has made us all go to the gym to do <laughs> arms and upper body work. After mm -hmm. seeing Natalie Portman's arms in that movie, we're all like, wait a second, I could have arms like that. What, what was her routine? 20, 20 push-ups, 20 curls, crunches, and with the thing. I mean, unbelievable. As my brother says to his wife when she sees Ryan Gosling or Brad Pitt with their shirt off, it's all digital effects, honey. 
It's all digital. <laughs> well, okay, here's another claim. Since 2021, Marvel movies have not done so well at the box office, to which I would like to play <laughs> what the Disney spokesperson probably said. Um, let me check my notes here. Uh, oh, uh, COVID. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, come on. Black Widow was released day and date in homes and the movie theater. It was pirated, and it still became the biggest movie of the pandemic at the time. It had a bigger, op- a bigger, a bigger open than Fast and Furious Nine. It was the fastest movie to get to hundred million dollars. It's also probably the most pirated movie of the pandemic. So. Yes, when you look at 2021, you can see, wow, they've had a lot of, you know, a lot of rough spells. Yes, yes, they have. The box office was shut down and nobody could go to the movies. And Disney was releasing them day and date in the home. (laughs) You know, uh, this just in, uh, I just got this in. It's it's breaking news here. Uh, uh, Of all the people who had a rough time in 2021 in the entertainment industry, it says here it was uh, somebody named everybody. (laughs) Yeah, everybody. Come on. Uh, that's a horrible claim. But the next claim, that's this has got to be true. The most recent six Marvel movies average $750 million each, which is, of course, Trump change. That is, <laughs> yeah, compared, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is compared to the $1.5 billion of the previous six Marvel movies, including two Avengers movies, by the way, including the highest grossing film of all time. So let's definitely compare. When I'm comparing myself, I always, I'm going to say Dwayne Johnson again. I go to Dwayne Johnson. I'm like, you know what? I go to the gym. I bring a picture of Dwayne Johnson. I tell the trainer, make me look like this. And he's like, hey, yeah, no. <laughs> right. So you're saying, hmm, didn't do as well as Avatar. <laughs> that's that's yeah. the that's the claim Come here. On. Literally the last Marvel Avenger movie was the highest grossing film of all time. So they just decided to look at the last six Marvel movies. Black Panther, Avengers Ooh. Infinity War, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Captain Marvel, Avengers Endgame, and Spider-Man Far From Home, which is from a different studio. Uh this next six movies uh, this six that they're looking at and comparing them to are Black Widow, the spinoff of a character, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, the launch of a new character, Spider-Man No Way Home, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, and Thor Love and Thunder. Uh, guess what? They all did well. <laughs> they yeah, all- I was going to say, wait, where, where's the one? Even Shang-Chi, which I know people were kind of plus minus well, on Black Widow. Pandemic, Widow, pandemic, plus- pandemic. No, yeah. yeah, but yeah, you know, good reviews, made money amidst the pandemic, amidst coming out of the pandemic. Black Widow launched a new character, Florence Pugh, to take over from, uh, from Scarlett Johansson. Shang-Chi, an important representation, bringing in an audience that wasn't represented in Marvel films very well. Doctor Strange, proving that his success was not a fluke. Spider-Man, of course, and it's the fourth Thor film, and it's doing great. China just won't release it in their country. So, yes, those last six movies, especially the Avengers and uh, all that, were the culmination of the first 18 films. You know, they built up to this climactic storyline, including the the denouement of Spider-Man Far From Home. So this isn't like it came out of nowhere. You know, this was building up to these movies and it worked tremendously well. And now they've rebooted and said, "Okay, we're launching new characters. We're going to get a new thing. We're going to get new people. And they've done it well. So this is the march of a new peak, you know, moving towards a new peak. Look at the next six Marvel movies and see if you're worried about them. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. By the way, the trailer was great. 
Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, The Marvels, which is the new Captain Marvel movie, which, by the way, made a billion dollars and pairs her up with Ms. Marvel from the well-reviewed TV show, Blade with Mahershala Ali, the franchise that arguably launched Marvel into its modern era, and Captain America, New World Order. They've also got Thunderbolts, a Dirty Dozen Villains type movie, and Fantastic Four reboot, Adventures the Kang Dynasty, directed by the guy who did Shang-Chi, so clearly Marvel's happy with him, and Avengers Secret Wars, all on tap down the road. You know, does that really does that really make you think you're worried for them? I don't think so. No, especially, I mean, as you pointed out before we began recording, uh, look, look at the television work they're doing with WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. People, my daughter loves Loki. Uh, you know, she she could take her, you know, she's kind of plus minus on the whole She-Hulk thing and definitely the Groot movie or Groot television show. She's like, really? Do I really need that? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, she's like, I, I can't keep up with all of this. This is getting a little too much. But right. the, some that, of these, that, now what that, I would say is what a lot of people have said uh, is, gee, you know, you're doing great TV, but don't take your eye off the ball. Like, in other words, but how are, they? are you worried about? Thin. Are you worried about these movies? Are you worried about no, Black no. Panther, Wakanda Forever, no, I mean, Guardians I'm of the not, Galaxy Three, the Marvels, the second Captain Marvel movie? I'm never worried about them doing well. I am, but I'm I'm the wrong person to ask because I am not a comic book movie person. So well, neither neither am I. But you know, when they, they claim the bad reviews mean Marvel Disney is in a creative slump. And I, my rebuttal is what you said. They never mentioned TV. They got great reviews for WandaVision, great reviews for Loki, which set up the multiverse of the movies. Uh, Hawkeye, Moon Knight, Ms. Marvel, She-Hulk. They've got a Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, which is already making me laugh. Um, but the point is, whatever you think of any individual show, they have swerved left and right with television. They have not tried to make movie, you know, TV shows with big movie characters, but just on a smaller budget. They've done something different with all of these shows, including What If, their animated thing, where they just say, what if, you know, Thor was a chick, you know, and all these sort of things that they do. So I think their TV work, which I was very suspicious of, They've been very, very smart about it. They've generally gotten very good reviews. Uh, they're setting up stuff in the movies, um, comparing these six movies to the last six movies, ignoring the fact that it was during COVID, which they, of course, acknowledge. But, you know, I'm sick of comic book movies, too. But when I look at what Marvel's doing, I don't think, oh, boy, they're in big trouble. Well, you know, speaking of being suspicious of things, I'm a little suspicious about this sentence. That Iranian director Jafar Panahi got. That's right. We're going into the social justice section. We talked about director Jafar Panahi, a very brave man in Iran. He's been sentenced to serve the six-year term that he received in 2010. So he was sentenced to go to jail for six years, but they didn't make him go to jail at that time. That's kind of how it works sometimes in a totalitarian state. They hold that over you in hopes that you'll be too scared to do anything else. And it didn't work in this case. He complained. He went to the court system. He said, hey, where's my friend? You've locked him up. I'm like, fine, we'll throw you in jail. We threatened to throw you in jail, and now we'll do it. So, By the way, we, there's your friend. He's in jail. He's you there now. right next to you. So more brave to him. Uh, a brave man, uh, a, ter a terrible thing. Iran's a wonderful country. I'd love to visit there someday, but not while these people are in charge. Paul Haggis is happy about the free court system in Italy. Uh, the Italian courts have released Paul Haggis, the director. They have essentially exonerated him and say there's not enough evidence to charge or move forward in the attempted assault charge that he was potentially facing. He still does face trial in October in the U.S. over a separate accusation of rape. 
Kevin Spacey had a bad day in court. A judge confirmed the ruling of an arbitrator and says, yes, Kevin Spacey does indeed owe $31 million for his sexual misconduct that amounted to violations of his acting and producing agreements on the TV series House of Cards. The judge said it was not even a close call. Uh, Here's my he, question. Mm-hmm. This was a judge in the UK or a no, judge in no, the US? This, 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 no, this is, not this, this is not the court case in the UK where he is facing sexual okay. harassment and assault charges. Right. It's a separate case. Uh, in, in the US, there was a similar case. Alex Jones ordered to pay $50 million to one family of a child. No, no, it was two. It was two right. families. Um, okay. Um, of a child murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary, but he faces other lawsuits from other families. You know, and that's he does, the problem. Yeah. yeah. He, he does do an entertainment podcast. It certainly ain't news. So that's why it's here. But I was very happy for our friend, director Marina Zenovich. In the Polanski trial case, they unsealed court documents and they all back up her excellent documentary, Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired. If you haven't seen it, you should. I didn't know her when I saw I barely knew her when it was, she brought it to Khan. I was just meeting her, saw the film, was like, oh, thank God, it's really good. <laughs> you yeah. tell this new person I know, that's a great movie. She's gone on to do other great work. But you know what? People can say one thing on camera in public and another thing behind closed doors when they are under oath. But L.A. prosecutor Roger Gunson has been consistent for many years. So that is a film well worth seeing. And he does not agree with he does not necessarily like Polanski. He's oh, just he's saying a, he, no, no one's exonerating Polanski. Not yeah. at all. Polanski. Uh, he thought Polanski got off too lightly at the time. He was objected to the plea that he had. He had a plea to the lowest level offense and was going to serve no jail time. Uh, he'd be out after some psychiatric evaluation. Gunson strongly disagreed with that. He strongly disagreed with the judge who was in charge. He thought the judge behaved poorly, asked his superiors to have the judge removed. They refused. Polanski got every possible break, including the fact that when he was under psychiatric evaluation and they all they just wanted to release him and get it over with, he had three separate exit interviews. Why? Why three? Because the first two times he just couldn't express any remorse for raping a 13-year-old child. He's just like, what was the big deal? They're like, no, that's not the right answer. I mean, so, but- <laughs> Back to your cell. Right, back to your cell. The deal was made. And when the judge reneged on it for no good reason, Gunson thought that too was wrong. He would not have made the deal. Polanski would never get that deal today. Uh, he's not an admirable person, but he should have been free in the 1970s. He should have been free to work in the U.S. and come and go with anyone who chose to work with him. That deal would never be made today. But it was uh, yet another miscarriage of justice when that deal was offered to him and then pulled back at the last second. Would you say it's a big deal that this I, information I, comes out now? I, I would not. I would say yeah, I'm in I London. I, you, when I say you should see that documentary film, Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired, you should say, what should I see in London, Michael? You're what in London, I see in London Michael? All the time. I'll tell oh, you, not I, a lot. I haven't seen theater in three years. I've yet to see something really great, except for one tour. Uh, I saw 101 Dalmatians, the musical at Regent's Park. I don't think they should take it to the West End. Maybe it will work there, but it ain't coming to America. At the National, I saw a fun show, Jack Absolute Flies Again. Do you remember the show, One Man, Two Governors, that yes. turned James Corden from a yeah, star to a superstar? We talked yeah. about it the last uh, episode. Oh, I, I saw it again. It was great. Very, very, very fun cast. Very solid show. I saw Catherine Hunter do her last day of King Lear at the Globe and discovered at the Globe, where you can stand for five pounds as one of the groundlings, I realized I am too old to stand for three hours watching a drama. 
trauma. <laughs> so that was a sad thing. I saw The Southbury Child at the Bridge Theater with Alex Jennings, one of my favorite actors. The Bridge is a new jewel in the West End. The show was solid. Probably could have a better production. Not a great show, but a good show about the Church of England. And Alex Jennings was wonderful. And it was nice to see The Bridge. I also saw a new place I've never seen before called Alexandra Palace. It's like one of those glass things you would see at an exhibition, this huge crumbling palace, like way out in the middle of nowhere. They have an ice skating rink. They have this huge crumbling theater like the Harvey that you might see in New York if you go to the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And they did this show, Tom, Dick, and Harry, which is about the true story behind the movie The Great Escape, that World War II drama with Steve McQueen. You know that movie? Yeah. Yeah. This is the basic real story told again in a theater, fun, light um, it didn't work great, and the acoustics were poor, but it was really fun to see the Alexandra Palace. I'm not sure if they should take that to the West End. I wouldn't invest in it. I went to the Tower of London and saw an immersive event uh, using virtual reality. It's called the Gunpowder Plot. Do you remember Remember the 5th of November? Gunpowder, treason, and plot. I do, I and s- I love Natalie Portman in it. <laughs> I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. It's the story of Guy Fox. He and Catholics were being tortured and killed, and they rebelled, and their plot was to commit a terrorist act, to blow up parliament, perhaps kill the king, kill members of parliament, along with 100 innocent people, and maybe hopefully take power, and then start torturing and killing the Protestants. That was their plan. In this thing, you have a group of people and you're taken down into the dungeons and you're asked which side you want to be on and they really urge you not to be pro-terrorist plot. And then they take you through this experience with actors acting in front of you. And there are three sections which are quite effective using virtual reality. One, you fly over London in a, in a chair that's on a rope. Another one, you're rowing through the, 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 the what Thames. do you call the big the Thames and ships are all around you. You can see the whole city and you can look at the tattooed muscled guy rowing your boat. And a final one where you're at the top of the tower and you meet the king and and the story is resolved. Um, And by the way, Guy Fawkes played on tape by um, Tom Felton of Harry Potter fame. He played Draco Malfoy. I liked him in those movies a lot. And here he is, a bit typecast perhaps as Guy Fawkes. He's also in the West End and a ghost 222, a ghost story. So Tom Felton having a moment. I'm almost done. Daniel Kitson at Regent's Park Open Air, a fun show, but not his best. I wouldn't bring it to America. Patriots at the Almeida with Tom Hollander. It's about the rise of Putin to power and the businessman who backed him. Interesting, but a little dull. Very well done. I love the Almeida, a tiny space. This is not the Layman trilogy. Life of Pi at the Wyndham. Remember the movie? Yes. And the, and the big book, huge successes. I didn't like the book. I didn't like the movie. So no surprise, I wasn't a fan of this show. But the craftsmanship is amazing. It's a guy on a boat with a Bengal tiger and, and a gorilla. I, I, I forget what type of, uh, of uh, simian creature it is. And some other creatures. There's puppetry. It is absolutely stunning. It's like Warhorse and its level of artistry. The guy is suddenly on a boat in the middle of the ocean with a Bengal tiger, and you totally buy it. So the craftsmanship made it worthwhile. Warn your kids, though. Animals do tear each other apart and kill each other. So if you have sensitive kids who don't want to see animals harm each other, not a good idea. I've got more shows to see, like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Back to the Future, uh, Punch Drunk, the great Punch Drunk who did Sleep No More in New York. They have a retelling of the Iliad called The Burnt City. And next week, I'll tell you about them and the Dennis Severs House Tour, the best thing I've seen in London so far, because I couldn't get ABBA tickets. <laughs> well, I'll tell you why you couldn't get ABBA tickets in, uh, during Big Deal or Big Whoop. There's a reason for that. 
Why? Whoa, tell me. Is it time for Big Deal or Big Whoop? Our weekly segment where we tell you about the latest headlines and whether they're overhyped nonsense or really, really important? Yes, indeed it is, he said as he scrolled to that section of the notes. Uh, You know, this first story, I am almost tempted to skip because it's about Chris Cuomo, who is now back. uh, Sort of. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And for for those outside the U.S., Google Chris Cuomo and... You'll figure out why we're talking about this. His show's because on all over the world. I don't know about that. I yeah, don't know that. Anderson Cooper, his show. Yeah, they show it on CNNs all over the world. They okay, do. well, you know, Chris Cuomo was uh, was dumped by CNN during a contentious, uh, and, he, and in a very contentious manner. It is still being litigated in court, that firing. The news network's top anchor in primetime is ready to get after it again. He's always like, let's get after it. So, <laughs> see, you know, Andrew Andrew Cuomo, listen to me. Chris Cuomo was CNN's highest rated anchor at the time. Cuomo is now joining News Nation, a middle of the road news channel that sprang from the superstation WGN. During the day, WGN shows reruns, but starting at night, it turns to all news with shows hosted by the likes of Dan Abrams and now, of course, Chris Cuomo. The channel averages about 50,000 viewers in prime time. So Cuomo has his work cut out for him. Just to give you some sense, Fox News reaches 2.4 million viewers during primetime. MSNBC has about 1.2 million. And CNN has around 750,000. No word yet on whether his first guest will be disgraced former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. And if those names sound familiar, there's a reason for that. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, big whoop, 50,000 people a night, unless he can somehow magically turn this into a supercharged platform. That's a big step down for him. He's got a podcast too, just like us. Welcome to the podcast world. Uh, CNN, however, is leaning back to less opinion and more news. A thing I'm happy to see. I like Anderson Cooper. I like Don Lemon. Uh, I was never a big fan of Chris Cuomo, but you know what? Uh, more news. Good. Less opinion. Happy to see it. Chris Cuomo, I don't wish him ill, though he did bad things and still can't understand that it was wrong. I'm just standing up for my family. It's like you can be supportive of your family without breaking basic journalistic standards, Chris. (laughs) Guess what? But anyway. Well, uh, yeah. And well, don't get me started on on that whole thing. Uh, Let's actually talk about another disgraced human being, uh, producer Scott Rudin, who is killing to Kill a Mockingbird, the Aaron Sorkin adaptation of the classic novel, became a smash hit on Broadway, especially with Jeff Daniels in the lead role. It's now touring the country and playing the West End in London. Like many Broadway shows, the acclaimed hit took a nosedive as COVID struck. It was supposed to reopen in June of 2022. And then November, and now it's not reopening at all. Sorkin <laughs> and director Bartlett Sher sent an email to the cast and crew blaming as I mentioned, disgraced producer Scott Rudin. Roger Friedman of Showbiz 411 first broke the story. Though Rudin is supposed to have nothing to do with the show anymore, he apparently nixed the idea of reopening. You might ask why. Well, Rudin says he just doesn't think the market for plays will be be around. It's not going to be back by the winter of 2023. Sorkin and Cher are perplexed and angry, but is this a big deal or a big whoop? 
This is a, a a big deal. I mean, it's a show on Broadway. It was a big hit. It kept a lot of people working. I'm looking at the latest chart for Broadway. Um, this is always a week behind. That's the you know we only get the info on like Tuesday. Uh, right. But right again, the two shows that are on Broadway that are at the bottom of the list are both plays. Uh, every you know the plays are at the bottom of the list, and musical are at top. So yes, if I was opening up a new play on Broadway. I would be wary of doing it right now, even if it was a well-known property. But To Kill a Mockingbird is a stunningly well-known property. It already opened, and it was a huge hit. Yes, Greg Kinnear did not set the world on fire the way Jeff Daniels did, but this was an opportunity to hire someone new. Richard Thomas is doing it on tour and doing very well. There's no reason to think this show would not do well again if you brought it back. It would survive whatever you know downturns there were to be a long-running hit. And even if it had to close, that would not damage the property long-term because COVID. <laughs> so you know, right. it probably shuts back down again. So no, this is a pre-sold property more than almost any other play you can imagine. It already opened. Great box office. Great reviews. This is inexplicable. Inexplicable. If it was a new show, I could understand it. Is he doing it just to be a jerk, or does he just think, no, you know, we'd be losing our money? Maybe he's right, but I don't think it's the right decision. You can always delay another six months. Netflix is number one. Woo! That that's the news I have here. In its quarterly report, Netflix had a lot of good news. It lost almost one million subscribers in the first half of 2022. Now that woo, sounds woo, bad. Woo, 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 woo. Yeah, <laughs> it does sound bad. But yeah. it was less than expected. Remember when ah. we were talking about a two million drop during this yeah. quarter? Yeah. Of course, you know, the company gained 26 million subscribers in the first half of 2022. So this this means Netflix held on to the vast majority of viewers who tried it out for the first time during the pandemic. Netflix fired 500 workers. That also sounds bad and kind of is bad for the workers, but Netflix argues it got a little bloated and all that firing has, you know, it's now in better shape. It's lost a few pounds and Wall Street just loves it when companies fire employees. They're, oh, there's bottom line. They're watching the bottom line. Oh, we're launching an IPO and I'm firing you. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Uh, more people watch Netflix for their movie and TV entertainment than anywhere else. More than HBO, more than CBS, more than, well, anyone. It's estimated that the Netflix share of total viewing in the U.S. hit 7.7% in the 2021-2022 season. In minutes watched per Nielsen ratings, Netflix hit, get this, 1.3 trillion minutes viewed. In second place was CBS with 753 billion minutes. Yes, Netflix, get this, they almost doubled the number two, almost doubled CBS. That, that's unbelievable. Oh, and the cheaper ad-supported tier that Netflix has been talking about, that launches mm -hmm. in early 2023. So is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, that's a big deal. They're firing on all cylinders. They will spend $17 billion on content over the next few years. Each year, they're going to be spending $17 billion. And that's their idea of belt tightening. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know, so that's, that's, you know, uh, the interesting thought, I wonder what you think the Netflix head said, you know what? Linear TV is going to be dead in 10 to 15 years. Of course, we'll have nuclear fusion in 10 to 15, cold fusion in 10 to 15 years as well. But what do you think about that? I do think linear television is facing a tough struggle right now, especially when it comes to audiences. It's almost like it's got a cancer. It's slowly deteriorating and the ad dollars are going elsewhere. So how do you keep it alive? Uh, and even worse, uh, you have all of these media companies like Warner Brothers, which we'll discuss in a moment, that 
that kind of survive off of their affiliate fees and their carriage fees, but they're also trying to grow their streaming services and one is kind of cannibalizing the other. So, you know, the, it's the innovator's dilemma. How do you kill the goose that you have today to get the golden egg? Yeah, I think it's foolish. You think uh, people still have antennas. Yeah, you know, no, people, I'm not saying it's going to be totally people still have basic cable. There's a lot of money to be made, you know, uh, and not everybody can handle or wants to deal with a thing where you go there and figure out what to watch where. That just makes it super hard for people. My mom can't turn on her TV anymore because we got YouTube TV. We have to, she used to be able to press the button and change the channel. We have to go in there and do it for, it's fine. She doesn't need the channel change all the time, but she can't just scroll. You know, it just doesn't yeah. work that way. She doesn't know where anything is. I'm like, no, 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 that's on, you know, that older people, people who just don't want to deal, that creates a huge barrier to just sitting back and watching some television. So CBS is still a big business. CBS oh, yeah. still makes a lot of money. And I think even 10 to, you know, ah, 10 to 15 years, people still have VCRs probably. So I, I wouldn't rule it out. And, you know, has Netflix growth stalled? So what? So it's a mature company with a hundred, you know, a couple hundred million people subscribing to it. They can have a good business that way, can't they? Do they have to have double digit growth for the rest of their lives? The expectations are so silly and absurd, you know, in, in terms of Wall Street. They just care quarter to quarter. Netflix looks to be a well-run, solid business. Well, right now, an arbitrator ruled in favor of the Writers Guild of America West that 216 writers who worked on Netflix theatrical films should actually get paid $42 million in unpaid residuals. Uh, the WGA raised payment concerns over the residuals owed to a writer on one movie. Get this, Bird Box. Remember Bird Box? That was a big movie. That was a big movie. And then they said, yeah, you, you owe them. But then, of course, it wound up being a whole bunch of other writers. And uh, Netflix uh, is now required to pay the writer $850,000 in residuals, along with interest of $350,000, according to the WGA West. But, of course, then it's all these other writers. And now the WGA is going after them, Netflix for $13.5 million in interest. My question is this. How do they know what the residual level should be since there's no transactions to, to well they must have had they must have had to share something in court right it must i have no the arbitrator yeah, must have had that's that's a good question if you take those 216 writers and divide it into 42 million dollars that's an average of two hundred thousand dollars a writer so that's real money <laughs> that's about right actually that's about yeah. I, I mean i don't mean the math on that i mean that's about like what your residual payments would be on a on a feature film at this point I mean, for, we're not talking doesn't matter for how long and what correct. period. That's and, why yeah. I'm, I'm looking at the a length of time and bird box to now $200,000. Well, there's all these different movies though. Yeah. We don't yeah, know yeah. how. Yeah. Okay. Now the answer, by the way, Michael, who is Mayim Bialik and Ken Jennings? And the question is who is the new host of Jeopardy? So clever. Yes, the producers decided to keep both of them. With Bialik still making the sitcom Call Me Cat and the show launching spinoffs, they decided there was no reason to choose between the two. What, what's the spinoff? Young Cat? I, I think that worked for sure. No, the spinoffs of Jeopardy. Jeopardy. Oh, oh, okay. Well, in any case, Jeopardy won't flip back and forth week after week. The plan is to have Jennings host the fall premiere through the end of the year, plus the Tournament of Champions and something called Second Chance, which we assume will be, I don't know, a second chance for contestants who played really well. Meanwhile, Mayim Bialik will take over in January, also hosting Celebrity Jeopardy in primetime on Sunday nights. That's actually a pretty good game. And College Bowl, yeah. 
Yeah, so is this a big deal or a big whoop? And should I have put that in the form of an answer? I think it was a good decision. Uh, I thought Ken Jennings has been doing better than her. She's had a harder time getting up. I've not been a fan of her uh, in her public uh, persona. She's a perfectly lovely person, I'm sure. But I'm not a fan of her public persona. But on the show, she's gotten a little better. Though she still has a certain... I mean, I, I try not to be proud and I keep trying to, you know, start from scratch, but she says things like when she gives the answer, you're like, oh, she sounds like, well, I know the answer. <laughs> it's like, there's something about it that's annoying. Um, and I, perhaps it's just my prejudice against her and not being a big fan, but uh, she's still not the best. And I don't think Ken and Jennings is great either, but they're both smooth. The ratings are fine. Why choose? They both got a lot to do. Bruce Springsteen is going back on tour and fans like me are not happy about it what well okay they're glad the east street band is back in action but when fans tried to purchase tickets online via Ticketmaster, they dove into a jungle land of rising costs known as <laughs> dynamic pricing during the day the prices for tickets rose tenfold to four thousand and five thousand dollars yes that is correct people so during the on sale date people like me would go in and actually not only people like me super fans the verified fans you have to actually get get approved to buy these tickets as a a, a legitimate person a fan who may have seen bruce springsteen before or may may have gone to a couple of concerts they know that you're a real person for those people, the tickets rose tenfold to $4,000 That's face value for a seat at the show, and not even the best seats, by the way. It's not some deluxe ticket with a backstage meet and greet with Bruce and the gang. Normally, fans have to deal with a 10th Avenue freeze-out. The tickets are <laughs> snapped up by bots before real fans have a chance. Not this time. This time, Ticketmaster said, you know, we will not let scalpers screw you over. Absolutely not. We'll just do it ourselves. Big deal or big whoop? <laughs> it's a big deal. Very bad, very bad for Bruce Springsteen. Now, Ticketmaster says, no, 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 no. 56% of the tickets have cost less than $200. $200, by the way, is a ton of money to see a concert. And only 11% of the tickets were affected by dynamic pricing. So one out of 10 tickets. That seems like a lot of tickets. John Lando's response is annoyed, defensive response. Well, other people do it. We just looked what other people were doing, and we're just doing the same. It's just... It's just bad. There's no reason for any scalper to get hold of any ticket. You make them show up with their ID and or their credit card to come in the door. No scalpers ever again. They can't sell them to someone else. They won't be able to get in the door. That would end scalpers forever. They've been able to do it for years. They don't need any high-tech equipment. So if they want to charge $5,000 for a damn ticket, they can do it. But be honest about it. It's just ridiculous. So John Landau's statement was that when they went and... um tried to figure out what the price should be for tickets. They looked at what the market was bearing for acts like Bruce Springsteen and right. priced it just below. Right. Yeah, of course. Yes. $200. So Paul McCartney's charging that much money. But they, and there's only 10% of the tickets were dynamically priced. Well, well let, so me like, let me finish. And, and yeah, then, yeah. so they, they put them on. And what they didn't know was that the platform would dynamically price them. Now they're saying 82% sold for $200 or less. But here's the thing. Here's the 56%, thing. 56%, 56% according well, uh, yeah, to Yeah, now, now the new number is 82%. But here, right. here's the rub. That 11% of the dynamically priced tickets accounted for way more than 11% of the net proceeds from ticket sales because they Come were again? thousands of dollars. So in other words, when you look at the revenue generated for that one show, 
But we know that those tickets all sold at $4,000 or $5,000. Just because they were available doesn't mean people bought them. They actually didn't buy them and were angry and posted about it and said, what is this I bullshit? Thought, no, these, these are tickets that, that were no, sold. Not necessarily. Just because they were posted at one point saying demand is enough for us to say you can get a mid-floor ticket or a crappy seat towards the back for $3,000. People said this is ridiculous. They took screenshots of it and they walked away. They didn't buy it. So maybe somebody did, but it doesn't mean all those tickets were sold. Oh, you I was have no at- way. You have, you have no way of knowing exactly what tickets sold for what price. So it's all supposition. Did he gross more than he would have grossed at that arena last time he was there? I have no idea. But there's just no reason to be charging thousands of dollars for a crappy seat. And there's no justification for it whatsoever. You know, the idea that there's a lot of demand when there are bots swarming your website, give me a break. You want to charge a price for a ticket, charge the price, and then make sure no scalpers get that ticket and can resell it. It's easily done. There's By no the way, reason you, might recall, you, you might recall, you uh, might uh, recall, oh, I'm seeing now. So, th- so Springsteen made them release the sales figures. So these are all, the 82% is for actual sales. Tickets sold, 82% of them were for lower. And 11% of the sales were for, so th- those are actually 11%. Right, but we don't know what, the, we don't know what the actual final Correct. price was. They go Correct. up, they go down, whatever. That's, yeah, that's nice. Who cares? It's, it's no, there's no justification for it. I'm a regular fan trying to buy a ticket way in the back on the floor, and I'm looking at $3,000. You can't justify that, ever. Do you if remember you when, a, do you remember when I, I verified myself as a super fan? I did Harry it too, Potter, yeah. Yeah, from, from the Harry for Potter something. From- yeah, uh, for the kids, right? And I got, I mm-hmm. bought the tickets, and I had to buy two extra tickets because I had friends coming, and then they couldn't come, and I had to sell them. Remember this, right? When I, yeah, yeah. and then I was trying to sell them for my face value, which was something like three hundred dollars a ticket. It was ridiculously right. priced, and I couldn't do it. Do you know why? Because the face value of the ticket was three hundred dollars. But that was when I bought them a year and a half in advance. At the box office, tickets were still available at for like a hundred dollars or a hundred and fifty dollars. It was ridiculous. Are you, well, you know, they've, they've figured out those things. If you paid $300 for it, face value from the actual box office people, you should be able to resell it for that price if someone's willing to buy it, but nobody wants it because there's cheaper tickets free. Correct. But yeah, nonetheless, that's, that's, that's an issue with just buying a hot ticket to a hot show and finding a year later that it's not as, that hot anymore. Right. Well, let's stick with, uh, with music for a second. So Springsteen's people, they get defensive after fans speak out. Beyonce? She listens. A few weeks ago, some fans listening to Lizzo's new album cringed when Lizzo sang the word spaz. That's an offensive slur often linked to cerebral palsy and other illnesses and conditions that mess with people's motor controls. Spastic, for instance, refers medically to people experiencing difficulty controlling their muscles. Lizzo said something that I would have said in that moment. Yeah, I didn't know that. I had no idea. And she changed the lyric. Now Beyonce's new album used the word spaz twice in one song, a duet with Drake. Fans spoke up and Beyonce's people said, oh, okay, the word not used intentionally in a harmful way will be replaced. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, thank God for digital. You know, it's like, I love when I have stories online because, you know, you print something and then you can't correct it. You have to put a box in a week later. You find out an error, you can correct it and it's disappeared and it's gone. I mean, someone can always find you made a mistake, but the correction is there and that article is forever there with the proper information. So that's cool. And we're seeing the same thing with music. It's not an LP. I'm sure it is, but most people are listening to it on streaming. You make a mistake or you need to change something, you can do it. So that's pretty cool. By the way, she should thank people because the lyrics were actually spazzing on that ass, spaz on that ass. 
to which I say, yeah, those aren't really good lyrics anyway. So <laughs> that's, that's okay. But no, I knew when I was, I mean, not trying to run you down, but yeah, even as a little kid, I knew spaz was not a nice thing to say. It's like, no, you're making fun of people who have difficulty with their arm. It's like, no, it's, it's like what Trump did with the New York times reporter mocking them because of their motor difficulties. Uh, it's just uh, vile. So obviously they didn't realize that now they know and good for them to just say, okay, you're right. I'll change it. Yeah, I, I guess I just never really thought about the word that much, that, that it actually mm. meant something that was, uh, you know, related to a medical condition as opposed to just calling somebody, hey, you, you ding-a-ling, you know, whatever. Uh, who knew? Obviously, you did. Uh, now, speaking of concerts and music, Live Nation is the dominant player in the live entertainment business, and it just had a huge second quarter. Of course, it's up over 2021 and 2020. I mean, that's kind of those years were ravaged by the pandemic. But so far, Live Nation has sold 100 million tickets. Get this. That's more than the entire year of 2019. Wow. hundred million. Yeah. Globally, the company is up in every metric with most of the growth coming from international markets rather than the U.S., though the U.S. is doing well, too. Fans are spending more per ticket and they're spending more at the venues. Live music and comedy is back. Thanks to new big draws like Harry Styles and Olivia Rodrigo and stalwarts like Springsteen. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal when you're looking at the bottle. Will people come back to Broadway? Will they come back to movies? People who say streaming, it's changed forever. Nobody's going to go to the movies. Nothing has changed in the last two years. People have not suddenly lost the desire to go to a movie and see a big fun movie with a big crowd. It's fun. There is no reason why it should take more than just a regular supply of good movies for the box office to be right back where it was in 2019. People say 2024 at the earliest. I'm like, not if they make the movies and release them. Then it could be 2023. There's no reason why I couldn't. You just got to make the movies and release them. By the way, My Chemical Romance, a, a band I really like, uh, their reunion tour is a smash hit. It's the biggest tour of their career. Uh, they're just killing it. Uh, you know, they never over toured at all. They're keeping their prices reasonable and they're reaping the rewards right now. So Gerard Way has got the TV show, The Umbrella Academy, based on his comic book series. And now Reunion of My Chemical Romance. I just hope they get back in the studio. Speaking of production and releasing movies and making movies to put into production to release... Man, this, this, <laughs> yeah. this is a this is a weird story. Let me read it. See what you react to okay. it because this is complicated. Europe is staring down two major crises: one short term and one long term. Uh, they're both related to TV and movie stuff. First. A deal needs to be struck by September 1st in the UK or TV production may be thrown into chaos all over the world. Now, let me ask you, why would it be thrown in chaos all over the world if we're just talking about TV production in the UK? Uh, I have no idea. Well, well because people because got schedules. Unions, right? well, well, people got schedules, you know, they're supposed to do this and then got to go there to do that. Yeah. If UK stops, it throws everybody's schedule off, off balance. That alone, you know, everybody's got things to do. They got movies and TV shows and I'm going to do this and that. So if the UK shuts down, that affects everybody. So here's what's happening. Back to or the Broadcasting Entertainment Communications and Theater Union. It's a major union in the UK. It's the crew people, basically. They're at the table with PACT, the Producers Alliance for Cinema and Television. In other words, the crew is on one side and the producers are on the other. Everyone says they want a deal on high-end TV drama. That's the genre that we're talking about. Their five-year contract is up on high-end 
TV drama. So not EastEnders, not reality TV, but stuff like The Crown. Okay, but the deadline is approaching and the issues boil down to the same ones that IATSE battled over and won in the U.S. Insane working hours. The crews are tired of working late into the night, into the weekends and with their breaks either paid off rather than happening or, you know, later than they should. They want their life back. The producers are like, fine, but you got to take a pay cut if you're going to work less hours and no one is budging. So how do you feel about that? You know, the, the crews are like, you've been driving us like lunatics and enough is enough. I want to see my children occasionally. And the person, well, you better take a pay cut. Do you think that's a reasonable thing? Or were they already being just treated miserably? Like the pay isn't the problem. The problem is the working conditions. I think that the working conditions in general all over the world, if you look at uh, airline stewards, it's the same thing. They're saying, look, you either hire more of us or you have to reduce the number of flights because we can't. There's just no more capacity for us. We can't work eight hours, eight eight days a week because there aren't eight days a week. So you've scheduled eight days of flights in seven days and there aren't enough people. Well, well, that's a little bit of a problem related to worker shortage and COVID. The TV production and movie production stuff is an ongoing problem that's been going on for years where they're just always pushing it, pushing it pushing it longer, longer days, falling into the weekend. You know, you work till three in the morning, and you got to be back there at five in the morning the next day. Well, yeah, that, this is the same thing that I have exactly, exactly. It's the same stuff. That it, and and my, what's going to happen is that the, the unions will win out on this. They will, and they should. And my feeling is not that they are, have been overpaid. It's like, no, you, you were crazy to be treating them like this in the first place. They're not overpaid. They're overworked. Um, so that's my feeling about that. Um, but, uh, you know, there's going to be a problem because they're going to need an extra day when they can't go 18 hours a day. Guess what? They're going to, instead of five days, they're going to need six days to do some things. Now, the other big crisis, politicians in the UK and France have set their sights on dismantling the $36 billion public broadcasting sector in Europe. In France, legislation gutting the license fee. That's how they fund their public, their, their public television works. That's up for a vote in the UK. The conservative government is considering the same measure along with privatizing Channel 4, something nobody wants. The result, two key industries that are the envy of the world may be thoroughly upended. Is that a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal because that's where a lot of uh, talent comes from. A lot of great great work comes from there. Uh, and I would say uh, right now, you also have France saying that they don't want outdoor cinema because people haven't returned to indoor cinema. So they're saying no more outdoor screenings. Oh, Everybody God. Has to go. Oh, and my I'm just God. Like, Seriously, do you not have other things to worry about? <laughs> that, that seems very narrow-minded. And in the UK, it's like you have the BBC. It's a jewel of the world. The soft power of the BBC is so remarkable. It's a trusted voice all over the world to try and gut that or mess with that. And what they want to do is, well, we're just going to an annual budget that you know will be approved every year rather than this TV licensing fee thing that we're doing. Yes, the problem is when they don't have a long-term license fee that politicians can't mess with, every year somebody new is in power and they go, eh, we're going to cut this. They can't plan long-term. They don't have a steady income that they can rely upon. They're suddenly up to the vagaries of whatever politicians that week are in the mood for doing. And that makes it very hard for them to plan long-term. Uh, it works very well the way it is. There's, these are solutions in search of a problem. It's a dangerous, sad thing, and they would really regret it, I think, if they do it. 
Well, that wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week. It moves us along into Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. And this week's story is all anybody in Hollywood can talk about. Everybody in the media business. All I want to talk about is your name for the combined Warner Brothers Discovery behemoth. What, What should they be calling this thing? You want to know it now, or should I... Should I hold it? Hold off until? No, I think you should tell us. I mean, why hold off? HBO Disco Max. <laughs> Come on, HBO Disco Max. I like it. <laughs> Get the BGs to write the theme song. Exactly. Or so, PG, you know, I guess actually. Sorry to say. Um, you know, yeah, exactly. There's only one left. Uh. Okay, so everybody knows Warner Brothers was bought by AT&T, then, of course, was turned over to Discovery, and David Zaslav, when, and the head of Discovery, when he took over, everybody said that the new Warner Brothers Discovery, he would, uh, he would axe expensive shows and movies were going to face the chopping block and be replaced with a lot of cheap reality program. Well, here's the thing. Uh, that's exactly what's happening. A few big shows get big swings at bat and the big budgets to go with that. But a lot of programming is being killed at WBD, the underwear company that, uh, <laughs> uh, well, especially, by the way, in the TV arena. TBS and TNT, those networks, those cable networks here in the U.S., in particular, are getting out of the business of creating TV shows. I don't know what they're in business for then. Well, they began as shows that showed reruns, you know, yeah, TBS well, I guess showed live, live sports and, you know, Gilligan's Island. Yeah, well, here are some of the shows. Here are some examples, okay? The Emmy-winning late-night show Full Frontal with Samantha B has been canceled. I don't know if that had a, a lot of international viewers. Then when TNT's Animal Kingdom and Snowpiercer are done with their current orders, both channels will be done with original programming. That's it. True TV, on the other hand, is faring better, but of course it specializes in, well, cheap reality programming. It's not only long-running shows that are facing the X. Thanks to some accounting opportunities, Zasloff and company decided it was cheaper and smarter to simply bury two direct-to-streaming projects rather than release them. Okay, think about that. They're saying we'd rather take the tax write-off. One of these projects is Scooby-Doo's holiday special, and the other is the one everybody's talking about, Batgirl. It cost over $90 million to make. $90 million. They say it's too small to turn into a feature film and too big for streaming. It just makes more financial sense to kill them and take a tax write-off, even though both of these I guess uh, I wanted projects. to say movies. Yeah, both of these projects, they're done. Can you imagine if you are the director of that? I well, the, be- guy, the guys who directed the animated special, were one of them was getting married when they found out the project was killed. It was just, it was awful. So what is going on? You know what? I agree with David Zaslav. He says, we've here's, looked- what, here's, here's what he said. We've looked hard at the director streaming business. And our conclusion is that expensive direct-to-streaming movies in terms of how people are consuming them on the platform, how often people go there or buy it or buy a service for it, and how it gets nourished over time is no comparison to what happens when you launch a film in the theaters. And so this idea of expensive films going direct-to-streaming, we cannot find an economic case for it. We can't find an economic value for it. End quote. He's right. 
I don't get spending $200 million on a movie to show on Netflix. That is a head scratcher to me. If it's that big a movie, why not release it theatrically first? I think he's absolutely right, except for one thing. They already made Batgirl. They've already spent the $90 million on it. So it's done. So now you've got the project sitting there. Now it's a whole different thing. That's not like, should I be doing this in the future? I've done it. There it is. There's Scooby-Doo. I mean, it just it's insane. What, what I would tell him is, you know, you are being very fiscally wise. Pennywise and pound foolish. And in this case, it's very pound foolish because I'll tell you, if I was a creative talent, I would not want to go anywhere near Warner Brothers right now. This I wouldn't has been touch them. a story for days and days and days, as everybody knows. It just makes you want to run in the opposite direction of them. Like, right. Why but, would I want to have anything to do with them unless my name is George R.R. R. Martin? Right. Well, W. BD content production write-offs totaled $496 million in Q2. And that's half a billion dollars in one quarter. Right. And that's just the production ones. Okay. Because the total Q2 uh, for, of content write-off for that company was $825 million. And you might say, well, what's the, what's the difference? There was content in development. So all that stuff, the scripts they've purchased, rewrites they've, you know, they basically just said, yep, nope. Yep. I know we spent money on it. Shelve it. We're not doing it. So all that work, all that energy out the window. And apparently, by the way, unlike Jason Kalar, who headed up Warner Brothers until the merger was completed, we've talked about him numerous times here. Uh, he, he didn't let anyone in Hollywood know about his direct-to-streaming plans for all of Warner Brothers' 2021 movies. Remember that? Remember when until we- it was announced. Bad decision, yeah. Bad decision. Zaslav actually picked up the phone and he called Agent Brian Lord, a creative artist agency, who also represents some of the Batgirl talent. And he had... He had the studio executives call Gave the him talent. a heads up. Give him a yeah. heads up. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, it was Brian Lord and his colleagues at CAA that were mentoring Zaslov through Hollywood for the past year, uh, you know, kind of showing them the ropes. CAA's clients, on the other hand, were wondering, well, if you're doing that, how come you couldn't talk him into, like, not killing a $90 million movie? How did, how did it get to this well, this, well this is a story only an agent could love or care about. The uh, the agent's caught in the middle of those poor little innocent fellows. Oh, oh I'm well. not saying, no, I'm not. But, but, Notice but, how they haven't said anything. Notice how yeah. the agents haven't come out and said anything. There's a reason for that. Well, here's the thing. He's the new guy in town and everybody does this. They want to tear up everything that's before because if they keep doing whatever project is there, they get no credit for it. And if it bombs, they get the blame. So they think they have to throw everything out and start over from scratch and pretend, oh, we do it completely different everything's going to be different they always do this and he really does want to do it differently but he's not thinking clearly about making good deals with talent keeping people happy warner brothers had a long long history of being a place where talent was nourished and respected and same with hbo toss that out the window well hbo is hbo is the big winner here right i mean hbo has the big budget hbo has the properties uh zazov has been touting HBO and its success and the lineup of stuff it has and what's coming next. So they're not the ones getting the boot here. They're not the ones getting things thrown out left and right. Well, here's here's what uh, Bloomberg had to say. They said it is common, as you say, Michael, for executives to criticize their predecessors when they take over a new company. It buys them time to deliver results. Zaslov has turned it into an art form, repudiating, repudiating Jason Kylar at every opportunity. Kylar wanted to make movies for streaming. Zaslov is all about movie theaters. Kylar took HBO out of Amazon's channels program. Zasloff is going back into it. 
Kyler had a plan for DC. Zasoff wants a new <laughs> a new one. Yeah, the only thing I would disagree with there is that Kyler wanted to make movies for streaming. It was a one-off decision done because of COVID. Um, I don't think it was the right decision. He says, I've been justified. Look how great it worked out. I don't think that's true when you look at Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> so, you know, I think that was wrong and the way it was done was wrong. But I don't think he was saying, let's make $200 million movies for streaming from now on. That was not his idea or plan necessarily. So I think no. I disagree with that. No, but, he was given know, the charge of, of HBO Max. He basically right. was told, make this thing successful. And now... Discovery comes along with Discovery Plus. HBO Max and Discovery Plus will be combined into a single streaming service, as has always been discussed by this yeah. company. Uh, now, they don't even know if HBO will be part of the name. That would be a mistake, by the way. Uh, and to, it's not, going, to not have it be part of the name. Yes, exactly. Why yeah. throw away that like 50 years of branding? Right. In any case, uh, that Let's call service, it the Disney Channel, but let's call it something else. Yeah. <laughs> That new service will launch in summer of 2023 in the U.S. In, in, in the U.S. This is the crazy part. They're, they have admitted that the interface for HBO Max sucks, but the interface for Discovery Plus is really good, and they're going to combine them all together and take the best programming of HBO Max, the best interface of Discovery Plus, and make some new thing, and we'll get that out next year, and then... The next fall, it will go to Latin America. And in two years from now, we'll go to Europe. And then late, two years later, it'll be in the Asia. I was like, are you kidding me? Two well, years from thing. now is when they're just going to be launching? That's an eternity. Well, That's also, crazy. congratulations. Netflix is already there. Apple is, all, you know, like these people are already clawing up market share. And you're, and you're sitting on your haunches saying, we've got, well, in two years, we'll start to launch in Europe. That's ridiculous. Yeah, well, and... How about two months? You've just now launched in Europe in some of these European markets, like just this year. With, but with if you notice, separate channels, a, yeah. Yeah, there's a running theme here, and it is the Discovery people are better. It happened with the initial management takeover. That's why, that's why they're in charge. Right. They, and, they, they, and they, they've been picked as being better. The, well, the bosses that be said, by, you guys are going to be in charge. Right. And now it's the Discovery interface is better than the HBO Max. So well, no, everybody has criticized the HBO Max interface. It's okay, gotten well, very poor reviews. So that's that's not. I don't think that's part of this. But yeah, they're the guys in charge. They've been touting HBO, and they're happy with him. The heads of the people in charge Casey of HBO, Blois. right? Casey they're Blois, they're yeah. happy with him. So yeah, they've got they've got a bigger. They're raking in more money globally than Disney Plus, which is rock bottom, but not nearly as much as Netflix. Nobody gets anywhere near as much as Netflix does globally per subscriber. But they've got a healthy, you know, healthy number there, and it's going to grow as they keep expanding around the world, right? Well, that's the idea. That's the hope, because their first quarter numbers, which were down, and they were down because remember when we were talk, trying to figure out, like, how does HBO Max count? Like, AT&T had this, like, if they had access but didn't activate, then, uh, uh, you know, nobody, nobody really knew what the heck they were talking about. So HBO Max has 77 million subscribers uh, in the first quarter, 24 million Discovery Plus uh, in the first quarter. So that's like 101 to 92.1. So because right now, whoa, 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 so many numbers, so okay, many right numbers. Now, here's Just what you need keep to know. it simple. Here's what you need to know. Q2, 92.1 million subscribers for the combined HBO Max and Discovery Plus. Why? Because they are no longer going to separate 
the numbers between HBO Max and Discovery. You will just get one number. You will have no idea how many of them are HBO Max and how many of them are Discovery. You'll just, you'll just know. Well, I keep an ongoing tally in our notes. I keep them there every week. So now we're looking. That's what I have. So Netflix has 220 million subscribers. Amazon Prime is 200 million, but that's different because it's all, you know, shipping. Disney Plus has 137 million subscribers, but they get about four cents a subscriber. So Warner Brothers Discovery has 92 million subscribers, but they're making more money than Disney Plus is from their subscribers. So even though they're 40 million subscribers lower, fewer than Disney Plus, they're making more money. Right, because they have 53 million in the U.S. and 39.1 million, up 2 million, by the way, in international territories. And, and everywhere, everywhere, they make more per subscriber than Disney Plus. So, well, and, and here's substantially the more. Uh-huh. Globally, they make $7.66 per user. That is ARPU, okay? Average revenue per user. But right. that's the combined And HBO Disney's Max like at $3, $3 or something. So they'd have to have double... Right. Well, yep. in the U.S., they make ten dollars and fifty-four cents, down just a bit from eleven dollars and twelve cents. Or and that's where they have most of their subscribers. So, yeah, When you when you add it out, that average is a little misleading. But there you go. Yeah. So they're right there in the middle. Peak Paramount has sixty-four million subscribers. Peacock has fifty-four million. Hulu has forty-five million, and Apple TV has forty million. But guess what? Netflix has two hundred twenty million subscribers. Amazon Prime, Disney, Paramount, Peacock—they're all fighting for worldwide you know dominance and warner brothers discovery is saying well we'll take two years and we'll start to launch this combined company into it's like it's taking way too long i I just think it's crazy why why would they have a two-year plan here's the problem for zaslov and and it's he he mentioned it by the way he said he's they need to get better value for their services overseas that was a big Mm -hmm. priority let me translate that for our our non-english speaking listeners prices are going to rise that is basically what that means. well the netflix can make their money they think they have enough product and when you combine hbo max and discovery plus and cnn that's a great product that's a lot of program content and that's a lot of very valuable stuff so that you know no no big deal there i think that's that's reasonable there will be an advertising-driven HBO Max model that Why not? will be coming in 2023. Uh, advertising for the company was flat and is expected to fall between 8 and 12% in Q3 of this year. And that is due to the scatter ad market, which is the leftover uh, you know, purchasing of ads because advertising is going down. We talked about this earlier. Well, Um, the advertising market is big. If you add everything up, I don't know that it's going down, but it's not in the same areas that it used to be. I'm sorry. I mean, yeah, only in the areas that we're talking about for uh, WBD. Distribution revenue is down. You know why? Because remember all those affiliate and and carriage fees we were talking about? Well, Mm -hmm. as subscribers cut their cords... All of these companies, whether it's ESPN or Warner Brothers Discovery, they're all getting less money. From- As subscribers change their provider from a satellite and cable to, uh, you know, online, uh, they're able to renegotiate their plan and, and pay less money. Yeah. So they're not cutting the cord. They're still paying for lots of TV. It's a big it's a big ticket item. They're just paying less than they used to. Right. Well, and I would also say this, like, you know, I pay for ESPN. I don't watch it all that much. Okay. Uh, I don't pay for it because I want to, but it, because it's part of the basic package and I'm forced to pay for it. If I were to cut cable, 
I might not buy the ESPN Plus package, so therefore, but if, I, but you, but if you cut your cable, you would be signing up for YouTube TV or some other service, and they would be including ESPN. There it might go. be a slightly, okay. it might be a lower cost, but you're not going to just suddenly not have ABC, CBS, and NBC, are you? And PBS, no, you're going to no, go no, probably right. Not. So you are keeping television. You're just finding a different provider for a lower amount. Yeah. Instead of 500 channels, you'll have 150. Well, so here's what's what's happening right now. They're firing people. That's what's happening. They're going to fire thousands of people. They're firing. They're killing a lot of projects to clear the decks, and they're going to fire thousands of people. And if you're sitting there at Warner Brothers Discovery, and you've got a little uh, Warner Brothers cap, I'd say, hey, do you want to trade caps to your friend with a Discovery cap? Because you really want to be a Discovery person. Yeah, because that's basically what's happening. Now, keep in mind, in 2016, AT&T, they, were, they bought Time Warner for $107 per share. Now, Warner Brothers Discovery has a share price of $14.59. 14 bucks. So they got a lot of room to grow. Bucks. A lot of room to grow. No, so look, tell me, what do you- Look at that mm-hmm. drop. What are you talking about? What? A lot of room to grow. Now they can bring it back up. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you think about DC? What do you think is going well, on there with Walter Amada? He almost quit when they killed Batgirl because that was such a bat crazy thing to do. Uh-oh, you'll have to bleep me there. Sorry about that. What do you think about Walter Hamada? I think he's uh, probably, if he didn't, he probably should have left immediately. And I think the only reason he didn't is because Mike Well, they all spoke. They went to him and said, please don't. Right. And he's got uh, projects in the works like Black Adam with Dwayne Johnson. And, he's and I gonna, think he's staying through the end of Black Adam and, and then he's gone. I think he's he's I, I think he wants out now, but he's not going to do that to uh, Dwayne Johnson to Dwayne Johnson. And he's just going to he's going to stick on that film. But then he's out. Uh, and so and so D, and so Warner Bros. Discovery uh, is saying we want our own Kevin Feige. We want our own Kevin Feige. Yeah. Here's the problem. Here's what I would warn Zaslav about. If there was a Kevin Feige. Everyone in Hollywood would be out there trying to hire somebody like the person who runs Marvel, Kevin Feige, to create their universe over the course of 20 years. But nobody has shown themselves and nobody has come forward. And certainly DC has tried. They tried to make Zack Snyder that person. He wasn't. And they tried to make Walter Hamada that person. He, I don't necessarily know that whether he, he was given a chance uh, yes he, he was given a chance and he has succeeded they have their kevin feige right now some serious hardcore fans point to the great job done with warner brothers and uh, with dc animation a great series of tv shows hugely critically acclaimed hugely popular uh, gone on to influence movies and stuff and say the guy who's in charge of that should be put in charge of dc but let's look at what walter hamada actually did he launched Aquaman, which grossed a billion dollars, the first DC movie to do so. He did Joker, a huge roll of the dice that grossed a billion dollars, the highest rated grossing R-rated film of all time. He launched Shazam, a more modest play, but the first movie did very well, and now it's set up for another bigger movie. What does he have coming up? The second Aquaman movie, The Flash, which they've got a problematic lead actor, but the movie's getting great buzz. They've got the new Shazam movie, and they've got Dwayne Johnson with Black Adam. Everything he's done has been a success story, at least commercially. And Joker, critically, absolutely. And and Shazam has been a critical success. So this guy has been delivering. He came in when there was a mess from the Zack Snyder era. He's making 
uh, their first billion dollar movie, their second billion dollar movie, launching new characters that are not that big like Shazam, like Ant-Man did for Marvel and say, oh, look, there's an audience for this. It made money. It was a modest budget. The idiot thinks every movie has to be $200 million. Shazam, look it up. It was like 90 million, 80 million, something like yeah. that, $75 million. Just the right amount to do to launch that franchise. And he's got three or four movies lined up that look like big, big hits. What the hell is their problem with Walter Hamada? Well, Somebody else keep made this argument in the trades. I apologize for not having their name at my fingertips. But uh, when you look him up, you was can see. Was it Kim see. Masters? I think it was Kim Masters who made the same. Maybe it was. Well, she, I worked with her at Premiere. I mean, I worked with her. I was a nobody. And she was an important writer at Premiere. But I, I got her coffee at Premiere. You know? <laughs> I, you, know, you know, but no. So I was at Premiere when the important Kim Masters was there. She did great work there. Maybe it was her. But, you know, they're nuts if they're kicking Walter Hamada to the door. Well, remember. Like, he's a problem. Toby Emmerich is, is, you know, was a good at studio executive for over t- like 30 years at Warner Brothers. And, and but he, Zasloff wanted his own people. Now he's got his own people. You know, he has Mike DeLuca and Pam Abdi running the film division. Except, who, have not done, who have not done a great job. Well, they literally took over two months ago. No, th- at their last place. Oh, over at MGM? Yeah. Well, I think they were there for less than a year. (laughs) Their their track record is not great in the last five years. Well, they, you know, Zaslav hired Alan Horn, who helped found Castle Rock, who ran Warner Brothers for 12 years, and then went over to Disney and ran that for 10 years. He's 10 months out of Disney. And Zaslav calls him up and says, hey, do you want to come over and just act as a consigliere? I know you're retired, but will you come back and just kind of like, when Mike and Pam have some questions, can you... But really what he's doing is saying, hey, can you call all the talent that I just pissed off and uh, maybe, <laughs> you know, smooth things over with them because, you know, you have good talent relationships and apparently I don't know what I'm doing. So apparently that's important. <laughs> yeah. But really, when you really look at it, OK, yes, there's the whole, you know, Walter Hamada thing. Yes, that's a problem without a doubt. But here's a big problem. They have this new combined company has $50 billion in debt. The company makes a profit of $9 billion a year. Okay. About so, and even worse, Zaslav has said, I will promise wall street. I'm going to find $3 billion in this company's budget. That, that is redundancy and $3 billion in efficiencies, thus all the firings, thus all the tax write-offs, thus all of the, we're not going to be spending hundreds of millions of dollars on movies for HBO Max. That's why you're, that's why you're seeing this because ultimately when you look at Warner Brothers Discovery, it's a big, huge company to people like you and I, Michael, where it's a $35 billion company. Okay with a market cap of $35 billion. But when you look at Disney with a market cap of $195 billion, and you look at Netflix, which has a $100 billion valuation, well, you look at, you look at Warner Brothers Discovery and you think, well, Apple's got a, like a spare $35 billion lying around, doesn't it? I mean, it's just ripe for being picked up. And I don't know how they're going to refinance this company so that they don't get picked off by someone like Comcast. By the way, it was it was Mike and Pam who went to Walter Hamada and said, please stay, please don't leave, please don't leave. They convinced him to stay on because they like the work he's doing. Uh, that's according to Deadline. 
which okay. uh, which is the one that made the case for Walter Hamada quite convincingly. It's Mike Fleming Jr., Peter White, and Anthony D'Alessandro in a big story where they, you know, say what's going on here and what should happen. Well, you know what? I, I was so just what, what's going to happen. Do you think they're going to be bought out? Is that what you think? I, I, you know, it's almost impossible to know. I do think a lot of Warner Brothers people are about to lose their jobs and there's yeah. no re- reason for it other than they, you know, apparently from what I've heard personally, the discovery people are like, I don't know. I do like seven jobs. How come you're not doing seven jobs over there at Warner Brothers? <laughs> and I'm like, welcome to the world of studios, my friend, because they're big, giant legacy media companies. That's why. Whereas Discovery is a young upstart that has, you know, always <laughs> acted that way. Well, there's a huge gulf in between those two companies. And I think Warner Brothers is about to become a lot more like Discovery rather than the other way around. The problem is they already did this with AT&T. So it's like, you already trimmed a lot of fat. Where are you trimming now? Well, you know, we've beaten this horse to death. Well, (laughs) I think we've overwhelmed people with numbers. I hope not. The main takeaway is you don't need to throw everything out just because you're a new guy in town. You're taking too long to launch your combined streaming service all over the world. People should be working night and day and be compensated properly for it to get that sucker up and running as soon as possible. You know what you're going to do. Stop launching individual channels around the world. Get your ass in gear and get the combined. How hard is it to create a, you know, a platform where it says HBO, CNN, Discovery, you know, your little silos. You know we're going to hear. You know we're going to hear. Just like Disney did with Marvel, Star Wars, and and I know it's a lot of work, but it should not be two years. That's an insane time time frame in terms of trying to beat your competitors to take two years before you even launch at this stage. That just seems crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, you know what Norman Lear is saying when he hears that? Thank God I'm out of this business. He's like, look. I don't even buy green bananas anymore, okay? <laughs> That's right. Norman Lear is not dead, even though it is our obituary section, but why wait? Well, let's say happy oh birthday. God. Why oh wait my- Why wait to celebrate people? Let's do it while they're alive. Happy birthday to Norman Lear. It happened over the last two weeks. He's the legendary TV producer. He just turned 100. So that's great news, Norman Lear, being celebrated in a lot of great ways. The man knows he's left a legacy and that it endures. Lars von Trier, the director, we have some sad news. He's been diagnosed with Parkinson's. Uh, Betty makes a good movie out of it while he still can. So hopefully that will take a long time to show its effects. Don't know where he's at right now, but he's made some great movies, some interesting films. And he's got The Kingdom, a new TV series spinoff of The Kingdom, his hospital said drama, that is happening. So that is done. So that that will happen. But a lot of people have died in the last two weeks. You keep dying even as we start launching the show. Lawyer Burt Fields is dead at 93. You've heard of him, right? Heard of, heard of him. I worked with him. I'm, well, not worked with him, but you know, I've I've worked where you know the, the contract was going to Burt Fields for approval. Now, of course, he's dead at 93. And if he doesn't get into heaven, St. Peter's going to be facing one hellacious lawsuit. That's yeah, I mean, I this say. guy represented everyone. Name everyone. Every, every studio, every studio. Michael Jackson, Warren Beatty, you know, uh, David Geffen, Sony Music, you name it, he represented them. Uh, when Katzenberg sued Disney, he was there. When Warren Beatty sued Paramount, he was there. And when Anthony Pelicano got into hot water, Burt Fields was conveniently not there. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, not there. Yeah, so, you know, he's, he's a big lawyer. You could not not deal with him in the last 30, 40 years in Hollywood. Olivia Newton-John died at the age of 73. 
Yeah, she died uh, presumably of cancer. She she had breast cancer in 1992. It was treated. And then uh, it, it, she announced in 2013 that it had recurred and it, w- it had metastasized. Of course, she is probably best known as a pop singer and the star of Grease, the, the movie Grease with John Travolta. She died at the age of 73, the Australian singer. Uh, you know, my, my first uh, celebrity crush. I'm joking, but, uh, you know, because 1977. You? No, I'm joking around, but, you know, because I'm that young. Uh, <laughs> 1977. You might have seen the movie in 1990 and gotten a crush. Oh, okay. Uh, good point. Uh, no. I, I had a crush on James Dean. It happens. Okay. Well, uh, of course, well, she, raised, she raised... Well, he dead, you understand. Yes. Uh, he, yes, I do. Uh, and she raised a lot of money for cancer research and indeed founded the Olivia Newton John Cancer Wellness and Research Center at Melbourne's Austin. She got her big hit as a kid in England with a cover of Bob Dylan, If Not For You, If Not For You. So that's that's kind of mind tripping in 1971 and obviously exploded with Grease. That movie, John Travolta, Saturday Night Fever and then Grease. That is a hell of a one-two punch and made Olivia Newton-John a superstar forever. And then she did Physical, the massive smash hit song, five hit number ones uh, over over that, that was the 70s into the early decades. You know, a, a cool career and a, and a nice person. Also, you, do you know that, that Let's Get Physical, that physical, the name of the, the song, uh-huh. right? That was supposed physical. to be her change of pace. That was like her. It like, was. Like, she I, was I'm going to be. Yes, sexy. Naughty. Like, that was supposed to be the, the naughty version of it. Olivia w- it was. It, it was. Compared to what is considered naughty now, it was well, like. She was like a nun. She was like a nun <laughs> before that. That's oh why God. it was so exciting in Greece. We didn't really know her, but she was so wholesome and sweet. And then she wears leather pants. At the finale of the movie, it was exciting. Physical was, you know, oh, woo, let's get physical. She's talking about having sex, Berlin. You know that, right? Anyway. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Actor, Thanks for that. Magnum PI actor Roger E. Mosley died at the age of 83. He had some other great credits. He was in the classic black exploitation flick, The Mac. And he played the blues singer Lead Belly in the film by the same name, directed by Gordon Parks. That's his favorite role. And on TV, he did everything from Cannon and the Rockford Files to Hanging with Mr. Cooper. But he'll be forever remembered as the helicopter pilot TC and the buddy of Tom Selleck on the hit show Magnum P.I. This is cool. He was working steadily. He didn't want to do a TV show, but it was like the umpteenth pilot by Tom Selleck. You know how how George Clooney had like a dozen pilots before he got a hit. So same thing with Tom Selleck. He was doing pilot after pilot, and 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 uh, Roger Mosley's agent said, "Just do it. You'll get to go to Hawaii. They'll treat you nice. You'll get a big paycheck. It'll never get picked up." <laughs> Cue eight years later, <laughs> and guess what? The role was originally set for Gerald McCraney. He was going to play that role, but the producers looked at the cast and were like, wow, this cast is really white for a show set in Hawaii. We need more Hawaiians, more people of color. And Selleck said, oh, I worked with this guy who was really good on this movie, this little B movie. And so they hired him as the pilot of the helicopter and owner of a tourist charter business without knowing he was actually a licensed helicopter pilot. <laughs> he was supposed to be broke, the character. And Moses like, no, I'm not doing it. He said, I'm not going to be the only black man in Hawaii and be a failure. So they flipped it. They made him the successful guy, and Magnum always broke. It was TC who had to had to rescue Magnum financially every once in a while. They also had his character being a partier and drinking and smoking. He's like, nope, not doing it. He said, I'm a role model. Kids are going to see me on TV. I won't do it. And you know what? 
This is why I thought this was interesting. When you're a big star and you want to stand up for representation, you're Will Smith or you're Beyonce, you know, you can put your foot down and make things happen. He was not anybody. I mean, God bless him. He had a career, but he wasn't a big name. And he was like, well, no, I just won't do it. And, you know, when you stand up for what you believe in and when people can respect that and made the show better and made a character that kids could look up to. That's that's really cool. And, you know, Gerald McCraney might have been annoyed, but he did all right. The next year he got Simon and Simon, which also ran for eight years. Well, also, uh, so let's stick with television. Tony Dow from he was played Wally on Leave It to Beaver. He died uh, over the past two weeks, not once, but twice. <laughs> yeah, he did. He died at the age of 77. Um, his wife was in grief as he was dying. And uh, uh, whatever the confusion was, she somehow told them that he had died, but he hadn't. And so we were like, he's dead. No, wait, he's not. And then a few hours later, he died. So that's a weird, quirky little detail. Um, but it's a really good show, actually. The first show where kids had a had a had a sensibility they were kids it was from their perspective as much as the parents you really saw it from the kids point of view and it's a, a more interesting show than you might think if you haven't watched on it uh in fact the show was really careful nobody cursed on the set and producers asked the parents not to let uh jerry mathers as the beaver and tony dow watch themselves on tv because they didn't want them to get swelled heads so that's kind of interesting uh well you know what was interesting michelle nichols career you were on Star Trek. Yeah, you were on Star Trek. I'm uh, sorry. The, um, it's a, there's interference with the signal, Captain. Or I'm not understanding this communication. It's something I've never heard before. <laughs> was, you know, but no, she was a groundbreaking actress. She starred as communications office Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek, and she has now died at the age of 89. You're welcome for not saying she was beamed up or something like that. But her career was notable and defined almost entirely by that series. I mean, she choreographed a ballet to a Duke Ellington song, made her professional debut with the Duke, sang with his band. She scored in some musicals on Broadway, got good notices in Chicago. She had an affair with Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry before Star Trek. But he left his wife for another woman, the actress who played Nurse Chapel. She was hot, too. Uh, but they remained friends, and she sang at his funeral. So she got this role legitimately. This was not about you know having a relationship with him. She had earned it. She was a notable person, and she got it. And she was playing a competent black woman on TV who was not a maid or some other servant. And that was very, very rare in the 1960s. After one season, she almost left. And Dr. Martin Luther King said, no, no, no. That character is too important to kids to grow up and see you on that screen. You have to stay on the show. And so they did. Women said they pursued careers at NASA and went into space because of Lieutenant Uhuru. That's awesome. And she also took part in one of TV's first interracial kisses between a white person and a black person when she and William Shatner locked lips in one episode. And in a final bit of groundbreaking, this is stunning. She became the first African-American woman to have her handprints immortalized in cement at Grauman's Chinese Theater, along with the rest of the Star Trek cast. That was in 1991. Oh my God! <laughs> How is it that late? I, I don't get that. I just I don't get I, it. I looked at Whoopi Goldberg won the Oscar for Ghost, but that was just right then. So she came in like a year or two later. She probably would have been the first, but that's insane. The, of all the people and the, the great actors who could have been on there, you know, I mean, there's just a million. I mean, it's just Lena Horne. I mean, there's a million people you could say who should be there, but dear Lord. Actor Paul Sorvino died. He was in Goodfellas, of course. He died at the age of 83. Uh, he was the dad of Bruce Willis in Moonlighting. He was in Goodfellas, one of the great films of all time. He always wanted to be an opera singer. He loved singing. And he was on Law & Order for a season. 
Uh, George DeZunda was in the first season of Law & Order. He was miserable and he quit. Paul Servino stepped in. He did it for the second season. He was miserable for various reasons. It was too much. He was overwhelmed by the working on an hour-long drama. He quit. He said he had to protect his voice. And that, that, that was funny because those two major departures proved that the show Law & Order was bigger than any one actor, as is the whole franchise, right? The show was the star. But guess what? He exited and was replaced by Jerry Orbach, who then appeared in the show for the next 274 episodes. And he'd probably be in the revival, except for the fact that, like Sorvino, he's dead. And, of course, the father of Mira Sorvino. That's right, the father of Mira Sorvino. Pat Carroll is dead. She died at the age of 95. She played Ursula in the movie The Little Mermaid. She won an Emmy back in the 50s, being on Sid Caesar's show, Caesar's Hour. She was a regular on Make Room for Daddy with Danny Thomas. She starred in Cinderella. Now, Julie Andrews starred in the first Cinderella on live television, a massive hit. Then in 1965, they did it again in color. She was one of the mean stepsisters. Leslie Ann Warren took over the role from Julie Andrews as the girl who hopes to go to the ball. It was a smash hit. It was one of the highest rated TV episodes of all time. And they showed it every year for a decade after that. She did a bunch of stuff after that, including game shows. She turned her career around by doing a one-woman show about Gertrude Stein off-Broadway, won a Grammy for the audio version. But she was she did a Falstaff on stage. But she was Ursula and sang Poor Unfortunate Souls and really helped make that movie the smash hit that really cemented T- Disney's return to animation forever. Well, we could literally go on for probably the next We're almost two, done. Two, two, what are you talking about? David Bob, Bob Rafelson died. He helped do he helped do the monkeys and lots of cool movies. He and Jack Nicholson wrote the monkeys pilot and that wrote the monkeys movie head. Tony and Emmy winner Mary Alice has died in her eighties. She's won an Emmy for I'll Fly Away, one of my favorite TV shows and a show you cannot see. Mad Magazine illustrator Paul Coker Jr. He died at the age of ninety three. Check out the link in our show notes. We've got a link to a guy who lists every single article for Mad that Coker ever illustrated, not to mention every cover image and more from the magazine. Kind of cool. Emmy-winning comedian Kevin Rooney died at the age of 71. He was a comedian's comedian. Mo Austin ran Warner Brothers, made it the label that every artist wanted to be at. He brought in Randy Newman and people who weren't going to sell big album sales but he respected them and kept them there and that was a magnet for every other artist everybody wanted to be on warner brothers and that's why they ended up with van morrison fleetwood mac the grateful dead Joni mitchell james taylor you know who told him and gave him that idea frank sinatra british actor david warner played evil in terry gilliam's time bandits along with a million other movies and tv shows uh but you can't really stop playing evil and hill street blue star toreen black died at the age of 82 Great actor. I loved him. He was a big person who pushed for adoption, adopted a ton of kids on his own as a single dad. And he played Detective Neil Washington on Hill Street Blues, one of the most influential dramas of all time. And finally, he began by writing a story he wanted to read. In 1961, a young researcher named David McCullough walked into the Library of Congress. He stumbled upon a photo exhibit telling the story of a flood in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, the deadliest flood in American history. McCullough was stunned by the stories of tragedy and hope, and a little surprised he'd never heard about it. Looking for a book to learn more about this event, McCullough realized there was none and decided to write it himself. He was 28 years old. That book 
the Johnstown Flood, was an immediate, critical, and commercial success. Many books followed, including one about the Brooklyn Bridge and another about the Panama Canal. He wrote about three presidents, Teddy Roosevelt, John Adams, and Harry S. Truman. He won two Pulitzer Prizes and turned the modest Adams and the dismissed Truman into mightier historical figures. Roosevelt, of course, needed no help when it came to tooting his own horn. McCullough also won two National Book Awards, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and a different sort of fame as the narrator of documentaries, especially those by Ken Burns, and especially the landmark miniseries, The Civil War. McCullough told the New York Times in 1992, writing history or biography, you must remember that nothing was ever on track. Things could have gone any way at any point. As soon as you say was, it seems to fix an event in the past, but nobody ever lived in the past, only in the present. On August 7th, 2022, David McCullough died at his home in Hingham, Massachusetts. Fittingly, the historian himself now lives only in the past. That was a very good read. That was like the, that was like watching the Civil War. I was looking for the Ken Burns effect, you know, like yeah we'll just zero in on his face you know he's in a crowd and we zero in slowly on david mccullough <laughs> i mean that is it was like i was like well how long could he po- the only reason i let that go on so long without interrupting i was like how long could he possibly keep this up <laughs> apparently three paragraphs worth <laughs> go figure yeah well there you go now i should be on the stage well, Ken burns i am available well, maybe you could. He's got, uh, he's got Peter Coyote. He doesn't need me. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, maybe what you can do uh, is, you know, fill in for Ezra Miller uh, in the Flash. <laughs> that's the Flash. Yeah. I, that sounded the opposite of the Flash. That was slow and mellow. But you know, if they, if Ken Burns needs somebody, he could write to us, couldn't he? Yes, he could. Um, and the reason I mention Ezra Miller is he was just arrested for felony burglary in Vermont. He just, again? Just now? Yeah. Um, oh, dear God. But if you wanted to write to us, dirt at Showbiz Sandbox is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. We're also on voicemail. You could call us 888-567-SAND. That is 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. That information can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com, which is where you will also find ways to subscribe to us, rate and review us on any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. Not all of them do, but they probably should so you can tell of the world how great we are. I'm assuming that's what you would say, of course. Uh, now, again, all that information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is mgmt.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week, it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's IWantIllFlyAway.com. I love that show. For the love of God, I want to watch it again. Somebody rescue I'll Fly Away. Not to mention Northern Exposure with the original music. Oh, Northern Exposure. That was a good show. Well, oh, yeah. You- same people. Same people. If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that particular website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com? Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice.
Maybe not next week, of course, since we may not have a show. Unless they have internet in... Finland. Yes. Finland. It's also travel schedule. That's the problem. Is I, I, I hear you. I hear you. 